This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good evening, and thank you very much for joining us here at the Rabbi Ruben Epstein Show, number eight, with two very, very, very special guests. As always, our email address is email at marriagepro.co. You can follow these classes as well as other classes streamed live on Torah Anytime, as well as on Pat Podcast. Um, and we encourage you to follow the Torah Anytime Daily Dose at 929-355-4268. Now, tonight we have very special guests, which I'm going to introduce in a second, Rabbi Nelson Sherman and Rabbi Pesach Krohn. Rabbi Sherman, usually I open with a, a concept, an idea, um, which maybe is my own or maybe other people. But in doing a little homework on this show, on my special guest that I was having here tonight, I heard Rabbi Sherman say a line, which I thought was so powerful and so good, because there's a lot of people who like to dream big. And there's a lot of people who have visions for what their life will become and ultimately will turn into. And when Rabbi Sherman was interviewed, he was talking about ArtScroll and getting to become the general editor of ArtScroll. And Rabbi Sherman, you said something that was just so brilliant. He said, if you want to become a writer, write. <laughs> it's the only way to do it. If you want to develop a skill, if you want to become good at something, do it. Just do it. I can't tell you how many times I have conversations with people and they say, I one day would like to get into this. One day I'd like to get into that. Do it. Just get into it. Do it. You'll see that the path will start to become blazed as you continue to go down that, down that route. Many people talk and many people do, but few have accomplished the success that my two very hush of a guest tonight have accomplished. We have with us tonight Rabbi Nelson Sherman, the general editor of Artscroll. Um, his life story is a fascinating story from being a Rebbe to becoming a principal to ultimately setting the world on fire with uplifting the level of Jewish literature to a place which is, I don't know how you, how you categorize this. I don't know how you look back at your history of what you created there. Um, to put it in perspective, it's, it's, it's really unbelievable. Um, and Rabbi Pesach Krohn, who has become synonymous with being a mile, a speaker, an international speaker, as well as leading tours around the world to Mokhemis Kedeshim, as well as ancient Jewish settlements, communities where people have lived. So thank you both so much for giving of your precious time and joining us here today. Okay. I'd like to start with you, Rabbi Sherman, if I may. Um, so. just, just to get a start, just from where you're coming from, I know that you had a lot of shaykhs to many gedolim, and you have fam- famously said that your primary Rebbe was Rav Gedalia Shor. Can you give us an insight into who Rav Shor was and your relationship with him as a Talmud to a Rebbe? Well, actually, my primary Rebbe, Rav Shor, of course, and Rav Yanka Kamenetsky, both of them. Um, Rav Shor, Rav Aaron Kotler, Zechariah Levrocha, said that Rav Shor is the first American Godel. And as Rosh Hashiv of Taravadas, he was unique. I still remember, I still remember the first time I heard him speak. I was in the 10th grade, and he had a, an assembly for out-of-towners. And he said that we are like the people of the Chumash says that Mavakesh Hashem came to the Oyel Moyed. And he said, you out-of-towners, you're Mavakesh Hashem. 
you're looking for the Rabbanu Shalom, you're looking for Torah, you're looking to grow, and you came to the yeshiva. Now, in those days, you have to remember that um, in all of the American yeshivas, well, when I went, when I came into the Kailo in 1959, there were fewer than 50 Kailo Yungalite in the United States. And out of town is coming to yeshiva. Well, they had to come to a place like Taravadas because there's hardly any yeshivas outside of Taravadas. There was an Air Yisrael. At that time, Tells was the was the greatest out of town yeshiva. Rav Shor was unique in that he wasn't born in America, but he came here when he was young. He grew up here. And unlike all of our Rebbeim, Rashi Yeshiva, he was not a European product. Although he learned in Kolesk, he was a Talmud of Rebbe Aaron Kotler, but we could identify with him. And in a way, he was like a, a, an older brother, a much older brother, tremendous Derek Eretz for him. But, but he was unique. We, we, we understood him and we felt that he understood us. Now, Rabbi Krohn, you, you had a very special, not just from what I understand, relationship, but also sort of the, you picked up that torch, that, that title of Magid from Rav Shalom Shradran, Radran, right? Like when, when your family met him very famously, and then you ran after him because you just didn't have enough. You know, it's like, uh, what is that? Like the last days of Sukkot. It's like one more day, one more day. I just need one more day with Rav Shalom. And your family ran back to Eretz Yisrael to spend a little bit more time with him. Um, could you talk about that relationship? Because it, it, it seems like such a unique relationship. It wasn't just simply a Rebbe to a Talmud. It seems like it was more like, guiding your life, molding your life, who you became up until today is synonymous with, with that relationship. How did that, how did that solidify? How did that come about? Well, I really think that uh, it came about primarily because of the love that he had for my father, Oliver Shalom. You see, in 1964, my father sent me to Eretz Yisrael for the Knesset Gedola. I had never been to Eretz Yisrael before. And my father, Shalom, felt that even though every year I would go to Camp Agoda, but this year he felt going to Eretz Yisrael and to see the Gedolim that were coming from all over the world for that Kinesia would be very special. And so at that time, I really got a flavor and a love for Gedolim in a very, very broad perspective. Rav Moshe Feinstein came from America. Rav Kreisworth was there from Belgium. And of course, uh, the Geri Rebbe and many, many people were there, obviously, from Eretz Yisrael. Ravelia Lapian was there from Eretz Yisrael. It was just tremendous. And Rav Shalom Shadron, as well, was one of the speakers, not the first night, but on one of the other uh, sessions, and that was the first time that I saw him. And I never, I didn't even get to speak to him. I didn't really have a connection to him at that time. But a few months later, he came to America. And my father, Shalom, we were sitting at the Shabbos table. My father found out that he was coming. And he said, he's got to stay by us. And there was a fellow that was with us, Rafi Brenner. He had come a few days before. He was working with Chenech And that's what, Rav Shalom came for the first time. 
So he was laughing. He said, what do you mean, Rabbi Bardish has a place for him already? My father said, no, no, he's going to be by us. And believe it or not, you know, the Gemara says, the way that a person wants to be led, as you said, he goes there. If he does it, it's going to happen. And the Abishtah made it that it rained for two or three days in Eretz Yisrael so hard that the planes couldn't leave. And finally, by the time he did come to America, that place in Borough Park had been given away to somebody else. And my father went to the airport. I remember that Matzah Shabbos. He took his own bed and he put it on the third floor with another bed in case Shalom was coming with somebody else. And we went to the airport to meet him. Um, my father, my brothers, my Zayda. And my father didn't even recognize him. I recognized him from that kind of sea. I said, Pa, that's Rab Shalom. And he didn't even know who he was looking he for. He didn't know who he was. And, and, he, <laughs> and he goes over to um, Rav Porish and he says, who are these people? And Rafi Brenner, who was with us for Shabbos, said, you could eat by them. I was by them for Shabbos. You could eat by them. So I remember driving on the Van Wick Express. Rav Shalom was 53 at the time. And my father said to him, Rav Shalom, you don't know us, but I'm just telling you my house is your house. And whatever you want, whatever you want, you know, the house will be yours. And he wow. said, well, I'm only staying for two days until they have a place for me in Borough Park. By the time we came home, the house was set like for a melech. And my mother had set up the whole house. And um, my, my, a whole meal was there. My uncle was there. My cousin was there. And and at that time, my father had added an addition to the house. He made his own private Beish Never had a minion there, but he had a, his own Beish Medrash. Sholem thought he was coming to trade for America. Rabbi Sholem Grossman told me he was crying on the plane. He had never been to America. And he was learning Mesilus Yesharim, crying to fortify himself. What is he going to find in America? And finally, he sat down and my father's treating him like a king. And, you know, he told him, you know, you could be in this Mishmetish all day. The phone is yours. The desks are yours. The sperm, whatever you want. And finally, Rab Shalom said to my father, Rab Avram, I don't know you and you don't know me. Why are you doing all this? He thought maybe there was, he, he was trying to get something out of him. <laughs> so my father said to him, Rab Shalom, you think I don't know you. And he put on the, seat, the cassettes that my cousin had sent us. And Rabshon was amazed. This was 1965. He couldn't believe that they sent cassettes from Eretz Yisrael to America. And he was playing his voice here. And they became like brothers. And all the love, everything that Rabshon ever showed me was only because of the love that he had for my father, Rabshon. And unfortunately, my father died. He, said, he loved year. you too. Uh, yeah, eventually, yeah. <laughs> but I will tell you this. You know, the way Rab Shalom treated my mother, it was amazing. You know, he was so careful with Almanas because he was a Yasem as a child. His father died when he was seven. So he knew what his mother had gone through. So, you know, he was very, very sensitive to the family. And every time he came, of course, he would stay until, you know, my brothers and I got married and he couldn't stay by my mother alone anymore. So he would stay by my brother, Arya, in Brooklyn. And and we were close, but my two brothers, Rab Kalman, Al-Shalom, and Arya were much closer to him than I was in the beginning because I was learning in the yeshiva. And I used to have a seder with Rab Shalom. We used to learn like 
you know, uh, 5.30 in the morning at 6 o'clock, we were learning Torah based Yosef, and then I went to Torah Das. But it was only many, many years later when, you know, I, I realized that, you know, Art School had started, and I had written the Sefer Bris Mila. And by the way, I want to tell you, just parenthetically, that to me, it is the greatest covet in the world to be on this show with Rav Nussin. He knows that I revere him, and I consider him one of the greatest people in this universe. And it, it's so special You're one to of the me, biggest liars in the universe. What? <laughs> You're one of the biggest liars in the universe. <laughs> but, um, but then when Oswald came out, and I had written Brismila, then I thought, you know, Rav Shalom's stories have not been printed, and he doesn't speak English. The American public is missing out on it. And then I approached him and I said, you know, how about if we can write the stories? He said, okay, let's start. I said, I can't because I'm doing the Bris, the Brismila book. He said, no, but it's a good idea. I want to get started. So here's a little secret, okay? I know it's Torah anytime. Five million people are hearing this, but here's a secret. He went and he got somebody else to start writing his stories. I thought I would faint. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I could not <laughs> believe it. And I, I, I was heartbroken. And why didn't I start? Because Rav Nassim, if you remember, the sitter was supposed to come out a certain time and then it was delayed because, you know, there were certain errors that were found in it and you can't have one Nukuda off in a sitter. So everything was delayed. So the Brismila book couldn't be published because the sitter, they had already orders of 100,000 for the sitter before the Brismila book was going to be published. But then what happened was the fellow who wrote those stories made a tremendous mistake. And that mistake was he translated from the Yiddish literally into English. And you can't do that. You cannot translate when you're writing a story from one language or the other. You got to get the gist of it. And when people started reading what the other guy was writing, they said to Rob Shalom, this is crazy. You're not going to sell. Nobody's going to read this stuff. And then he came back to me. And that's when we started. Wow. And that's when the relationship really became very tight because he gave me all his notes and I had my cousin, Chaim David Ackerman, read to him what I wrote in English. And sometimes he would tell me, you know, the way you translated the story, the way the lesson you learned it, that's great. Other times you tell me, what's Mr. Meshuga? That's the lesson you're learning from this story? So here's another secret. That's why in all the manga books, the lesson is in a different typeface. Yeah, because I noticed that. Story, right, the story was his in the manga speaks, and the lesson was mine. And we just continued that in the other books. I never knew that was the reason. That's very interesting. Yeah. I just want to jump on two things that you had mentioned. One is um, one is that I, I remember reading that, I believe Revelio Lafian was also very against, um, he, didn't, he, really, he didn't get, like in the beginning, he didn't get the kayach of recording his shmuzin, which were legendary. And he pushed back against it until they sort of put it on him. And then he heard that idea like, whoa, this is really could have a kayach. Obviously, he had his svarim, but the, the the voice, hearing his own voice, I remember hearing a story. I mean, I'm talking to the two storytellers of our generation. So to say over a story, I was shaking in my seat right here. <laughs> in the middle, he would sing. Then he would go further and cry, and they would sing again. I heard some of his tapes way, way back. It's amazing. By the way, by the way, Rebellia came to that Kusia Gedoyla. That time he was about 90, maybe a year or two younger, a year or two older. And he was in Kfar Hasidim in the north of Eretz Yisrael. And he schlepped to Yerushalayim. And somebody asked him, Rabbi, you're not involved in the Agoda. Why did you make this great effort to come to the Knesset And he said, he came to make a bracha 
on Rav Moshe Feinstein to Gadol Hadar. Wow. 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 You know, can I tell you a story? I'm embarrassed to tell you this story. What Rab Nussin said is so true. Most people didn't even know who Rabelia Lavian was, and I certainly didn't. And let me tell you what happened. They asked him to open the Knesseah by saying Tillam. So he starts saying Tillam, and just like Rab Nussin said, he starts teaching in Yiddish, and he starts singing the words, and I'm thinking, who is this old man? Mm-hmm. And I shot my tape recorder. I could have had it on record, but I thought, who's this old man? I don't know what he's doing. I'll wait. I'm not going to waste my cassettes on him. Wow. You're smarter wow. now than you were then. Let me tell you a story about Revelia, Revelia Lapian. And I verified this years later. I spoke to his son in law. Story is true. And later it was in print. At that time, it was not yet in print. When he was a young man, um, he had a family. And the Rebbitson became very ill. And the doctor said, there's nothing that they can do. And, uh, and the ladies were in the room and crying and waiting for the end. There's knock on the door. The guy goes to the door. There's a peasant. It's a guy, a peasant. He said, what are they crying about? And he said, my wife is very, very sick. She's sick. Go into the woods and get this kind of weed, a weed. He described it to him. And bring it home and make a soup. And give it to her. Well, it sounded insane, but what other hope was there? So he did it, and she recovered. She recovered. That's Act One. Act Two. Years later, uh, the Svasemis was in the town where Rebellia was for whatever reason, and Rebellia went to the Svasemis for a bracha. And the Svasemis said. A yid who had gili el yohu does not need not need my bracha. A yid who had el gili el yohu does not need my bracha. That was the peasant. And Rebellia said, oh. and Rebellia oh, said, wow. if you know about it, then I do need your bracha. <laughs> wow. I, I'm, I am, I, I always say, I think everyone has their favorite book. Um, my, by me, Lev el yohu is just, it, it's just my guide for life. One of my rabbis told me that I should start learning it. It's it's just, it's unbelievable how it helps calibrate your reddish, your emotions. Um, I feel so connected to the, to the, to, to who he was, to what he wrote. It's just, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father, many years ago, he, he went in with his friends to Revelia for a bracha and they sat around and they said to Revelia, can we have a bracha? And he said, that's not how this goes. Each one gets their own, their own bracha. So everyone go out and come back in one at a time. And he sat with each one of them and he said, this is not just bracha v'atzlacha. Like, there's something that goes down to the sherish and the of each one of you. That's how I give over my brachas. And my father told me, he said he was so touched and so moved by, it wasn't just bracha v'atzlacha. It was one second. I have to talk to you for who you are. That for all years, I had this in the back of my mind. And then when I started learning his farm, it's just, it's really unbelievable who he was. I want to, I want to, ask you, um, Rabbi Sherman, you have, I, I don't know if you know how many books are on, you know, that have your name on it. Um, which book would you say, just starting off, which book do you think every person has to read? You, you have to read this book because it will impact and shape your life. I'm not talking about Tanakh, I'm not talking about Shas, you know, obviously. But which book that people in English, that could just be digestible. What, which book is that? Well, the, um, 
the two foundations of Yiddishkeit are Torah and Tefillah. So is the Chumash, the Yerat Skol Chumash, and the Yerat Skol Suter. <laughs> I don't say that because, because I wrote them. I, I, I wrote them as somebody who knew as little as most of the people who picked them up for the first time. And I, and I tried to do it, and I learned, and I tried to write as if I'm talking to myself, somebody who, who needs this information. And Baruch Hashem, that was Seth Dishmaya, it came across. The fact is that um, there are over a million copies of the Art School Sitter in print since the beginning, and uh, probably about three quarters of a million of the Art School Chumash. The Chumash is in French, and it's in Spanish, and uh, it's all over the world. Wow. And it, I just want to say, I think it's just very interesting, your answer, because there's so many people that are looking for, like, the latest and greatest. <laughs> it's, it's the basics. It's the well, basics. Our consider are timeless. They're <laughs> the eldest and the latest. <laughs> now, Rabbi Krohn, you, you have traveled the world, um, you know, gone to more places than, than most people can probably pronounce. Um, first of all, I know that you have specifically one thing about England that you'd like to speak about. And I, I would love for you to start off with that. Um, and then I'd like you to share with us just a little bit about your travels. Where, which places do people connect with, inspired? Like, where, where, where could or should people be looking to go to get, like, sort of um, an inspiration into their life from where we as a people come from? Well, I mean, I certainly love Americans and I love to travel throughout America. But when you're talking about outside America, outside Eretz Yisrael, I think um, perhaps my two favorite places to go are South Africa and England and Switzerland because of its beauty. But the people in South Africa, there are no people like that in the world besides their accent. But the, they are such mavakshim. They want to grow so much. They come to Shiurim, and as do the people in England, they want to hear so much. And I, I just find the sincerity of the people there absolutely incredible. And especially in, in Manchester, of course, London is great. Every year, can I know Baruch Hashem for many, 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 many years, I come to a place, a shul called Kinlas, and we have over a thousand people there every year in Elo for an organization called PAL. Phone and learn. I had a friend, his name was Sammy Hamburger, Rabbi Emmanuel Jacobitz's son in law. Rabbi Nassim Sherman and I, you know, knew him. We were there. We were in um, Manchester together and then in London, I believe, by Sammy. And uh, Sammy unfortunately passed away. And I wanted to start an organization in his name. So I based it on Partners in Torah, and they called it PAL, Phone and Learn, a guy, Dove Harris is the head of it with a wonderful committee. And every year, a thousand people come. It's amazing. And when you go to South Africa, it's the same type of thing. They're so enthusiastic in, in the Torah and in the mitzvahs and the Erlachkeit. It, it's just absolutely incredible. I was a speaker for uh, David Hofstetter at the CMA Shas in South Africa. A thousand people. Who could imagine a thousand people in what they call a marquee, like a big tent, in South Africa, that's unheard of. But a lot of people are growing there. Yeah. You think it's, it's not about, let's say, the history, the rich history, in as well, much as it's about... I wouldn't say people. the rich history in uh, South Africa. You know, 
you talk, if you're talking about rich history, you're talking about Poland and Lithuania and those kind of places. And that's why what you mentioned before, when I go the tours, I always tell them this is in a sea of Kedusha, whether I go with the guy Eli Slamowitz or Ari Sharf, wherever we go, it's a learning experience. When we go to Sarishnir's cave on Amatzah Shabbos in Krakow, you know, there's tremendous crying because we talk about Chinuch Habonim and Chinuch Habonais. And I, we go up on a hill where she's buried. And, um, you know, I have the women there and the men there. And then I tell all the men to walk away and the women are there davening. It's like Yom Kippur davening. What should I tell you? And, right. and that's what I love about these trips. I'm not interested in the history of the country as far politics and things right. like that. I just want to show them who are your Aimer, who are your Isa, what he, what, what the person said and what he did, what the Rebbe Rebbe the Melech said. Uh, I went recently with uh, Rabbi Cinnamon to, to Lezhensk and we did a dance there, the over and under dance, you know, that's the Rebbe's dance. It was like Gan Eden. It's just unbelievable how you get caught up in it and, and to be by the cave of the Ramo. All these things are fabulous. Mm-hmm. Now, just uh, before we move on, you had mentioned before something about England with Lagba Omar. Yeah. I just wanted to, yeah, I wanted yeah, to yeah. hear your. Go yeah, ahead. you know, I got a call on Lagba Omar from Akala, and she was come out in tears. She was so kind and so sweet. And she says to me, Rabbi Krohn, I was supposed to get married today. I said, What are you supposed to? She said, In England, they don't allow anybody to get married now. Yidin or Goyim, no matter what. She said, Please. Can I make a group? We'll get together. There are at least 20 callers that were supposed to get married like Boehmer in England. Just talk to us. I said, I just can't do it now because I have so many speeches coming up this week. But if we do it next week, she said, next week I'll have 200. Because throughout Europe, there's so many girls who are supposed to get married and it's been delayed for all these kind of reasons. They all need chizuk. And it's just incredible how many people need chizuk today. If you would know how many, I've stopped doing it. I can't do it anymore. Making videos for Bar Mitzvah boys, just even to say Mazel Tov. I get five calls a day of these kids that, it started with Parshas Vayakra Pekudeh. I told all these kids on a telephone conference call that they're very important, very important people, VIPs, Vayakra Pekudeh. That's what I called them for those kids. And then it, it started, and we had on that conference, we had 400 kids all over the world from an art school, Rabbi Zlotowicz, who was wonderful. He said he was going to send them all Haggadah, you know, the new Haggadah that, that I had written for, and it came out, you know, right uh, throughout this whole thing, right before the coronavirus thing came out. And But we couldn't send it out of, out of the country. It was just too expensive. But hundreds were sent out. Because all there are hundreds of kids that need chizuk. They feel terrible. They prepared the laning. They prepared the pshetel. They got their new suits. They got their new hats. They got the tefillin. And I tell all these kids the same thing. I stopped making these videos, but I call them on the phone. Any father or grandfather that calls me and wants me to make a video, I said, listen, the video is not for the child because he's going to watch it once. I'll speak to him. I'll give, me, give me his name. I'll call him. And I spend you know, quite a few minutes with him. And I tell him the same thing. I said, write down this word, Echad. Echad is Begamatria 13. Hashem is Echad, right? Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Ava is Begamatria 13. And you're going to be 13. Hashem, who is Echad, who's 13, has love for you, which is 13, because you're becoming 13, and you're being Makabal the Mitzvah in the most difficult time. You are the special Bar Mitzvah boy. 
these kids are so happy, you know, because it makes them feel special. Then I tell them, Vidibarta Bom, now you're a Mokhuyev. You know what Bom stands for? Bar Mitzvah. And now you are Mokhuyev in the Mitzvahs and you are special. And Hashem loves you because you're undertaking Mitzvahs at the most difficult time. And it makes them feel special. So that I'm willing to do. Wow. It's incredible how you're willing to, to give of your time. And not just for me, but I'm saying for any person who's willing to reach out to you, I'm sure it is greatly, greatly appreciated. Um, Rabbi Sherman, I, I know that you're very well known for your studies on, on the Holocaust era, sort of, you know, not just pre-Holocaust, but the Holocaust itself. And then like where Kali Yisrael is, you know, today. I, I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on obviously the world changed. I mean, the world changes, I think, every few years. You know, I think, you know, I look back at, at some people. I want to tell you a story. I teach Hassanim. So I sat down with a Hassan once. This is when I started out teaching Hassanim. So I was in my high 20s. I sit down with a Hassan and he looks at me and he goes, you know, this is just not going to work. We didn't even start. I didn't say one word. He said, this is just not going to work. I said, why not? He says, you're too old. You're not going to get me. I was in my 20s. He was in his 20s. He says, you're too old. You're not going to get me. I said, if you could find a younger chassan teacher than me, good luck. I don't know if there's anyone younger that, that's teaching anybody today than me. So I think that the world is, is, is cycling so fast through generations. And there really are gaps, you know, so many gaps. Um, you know, I, I have to ask my kids when I have technical issues with technology. You know, like, it, it's just such a funny place that we're living in. But I'm curious to hear your perspective. Um, and if Rabbi Kron, if you have anything to share on this also, but I, I want to hear from you, Rabbi Sherman. I know you did a lot, a lot of, I don't know if the word is study, but you gave over a lot on this topic. Where, where did, how do you see that things shifted or changed from pre-Holocaust, during, to where we are today? Well, I would say post-Holocaust, when uh, the Jewish world was in shambles, and nobody Nobody, not Gedele Hadar, nobody could have predicted what would happen in 75 years. The prolification, Baruch Hashem, yeshivas, kailalim, from families. But um, I, I always start out, I give, I, I give an example. So there's a, there's a fire in the shul. There's a fire in the shul, Rahman al-Islam. And the shamas or the rav, they're running inside and they have to decide, what should they save? Should they save the Sefer Torah, or should they save the uh, the ledger with the financial the financial details? What would they say? Well, whatever is more important to them. Obviously, there's a fire in the house, and your mother's going. Your mother's running in. Will she save the baby, or or will she? She'll go for her her five thousand dollar human hair shaitel. It's a choice. What will she choose? Now, obviously, the the choice is. Of course. Well, what, what could they choose? 1944, the tide of the war had turned. The Americans and British were sweeping across France. France had been invaded. And there was a very, 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 very tough battles. But the, the Allies were winning, moving toward Germany. And on the Russian front, the Russian army had turned the tide. And they were chewing up Chewing up the German army. There was the Russian winter, of course. The Germans did not expect to be there in the winter. They thought it would be all over, all over by then. And 
urgent pleas came to Berlin from Russia. We need munitions. We need reinforcements. The only way to get it to them was with trains. That was when the trains were going from Hungary to Auschwitz. Ten to 12,000 Jews a day being brought to Auschwitz for the gas chambers and the crematoria. This is a big shyla, you know, when you have such a shyla, you have to go to the Godlader. The Godlader was Hitler, Yemachimoy. And they asked Hitler, what should they do? We can't send the reinforcements to Russia unless we have the trains. The trains are in Hungary. And Hitler said, the trains stay in Hungary. He made a choice, you know? The Sefer Torah or the ledger, the baby or the shaitel. Hitler made a choice. He let his army in Russia be destroyed because the primary interest of, of his war, of his war, was that Lucy Davidovitz wrote one of the great one-volume histories of the war, and it was called The War Against the Jews. To Hitler, it was a war against the Jews. Now, since the war, Israel became a world-class power. Jews in America, prosperity, Torah life, England, wherever you go, wherever you go, Jewish life is growing and Torah life is growing. And our younger generation, you know, the ones that you couldn't, you couldn't understand, you, you didn't get it, that generation didn't even know that we're in Golis. And now we know that we're in Golis. Now we know that we're in Golis. And that's a very important lesson of the Holocaust. It's not ancient history. It's repeating itself. And what does it show? It shows that the Jews are so important. You know, what are we? You know, my, my friend Marvin Schick, Oliver Shalom, used to say the entire Jewish population in the world is like one typographical error in the Chinese census. <laughs> you know, you have, you have a world, what is it, 6 million people, 6 billion people, 15, 16 million Jews, and, and Nebuch, Nebuch, millions of them are not even Jews. And the whole world is busy with us. The whole world is busy with us. Netanyahu, you would think that Netanyahu runs the world. We have to remember we're in Golis, and we should be proud that we're Jews. And if the whole world is interested in us, hating us for no reason. Why are they hating us? Because we're Jews. Because we're Jews. That's, the, that's, I think, a primary lesson of the Holocaust. Jews in Germany felt that they were on top of the world. You want to tell me, tell you an interesting statistic. Up until World War II, up until, until Hitler came to power and started beginning with Kristallnacht, Actually, before that, but the real thing started with Kristallnacht. 25% of the German Nobel Prize winners were Jews. The Jews were about 1% of the German population. 500,000 Jews. Germany had a population of 50 million. Jews were the doctors. Jews were the professors. Jews were the most prominent part of the country. And German Jews in the 1920s, 
until Hitler came to power, German Jews thought it's a golden age. It's a golden age. This is our home. I remember, can I go on for another minute or two? Sure, sure. I remember I was once, I was driving and I was listening to a talk show. Barry Gray, he was the, uh, the pioneer of talk shows. Jewish guy. Not very Jewish by our standards, but a, but a Jew. And at that time, for the first, the very first time in the history of American entertainment, ABC ran a four-part TV story about the Holocaust. Two hours a night. Two hours a night for four nights. And a woman called in. A woman called in to Barry Gray. And she said, my parents were in Germany. And my mother said, we have to get out. We have to come to America. And my father said, no. My father said, no, I'm a hero. I was in, I was in German army in World War I. I was wounded. I'm a hero. I, I won medals. They won't do anything to me. And besides, come to America. I don't know the language. Here, I'm a professional. They won't be able to get a job in my profession. I wouldn't be licensed. And my mother forced us to come to America. And thank God my mother forced us to come to America. And thank God it'll never happen here. That should never happen here. But the seeds, seeds are here. One of the great, um, one of the great American character actors, an award-winning actor named Fritz Weaver, a guy. And in that TV series, he played the rabbi. And they, you know, they pasted a beard on him. He had to take care of something lunchtime. And they couldn't take off the makeup and, and be ready for the afternoon filming. So he went to, to the bank or whatever it was in full costume with the beard. And he said he saw the way this was being filmed, filmed in Vienna. And he saw the way that people were looking at him. He saw the hatred in their eyes. Then he said, then he understood the Holocaust. Even for an unbelievable. Wow. Now, Rabbi Krohn, you have, I, I, you probably don't even have to prepare speeches anymore because I'm sure people contact you and say, Rabbi Krohn, you have to hear the most amazing story in the world. And then they tell you about how they lost their cat for five minutes and then they found their cat and it was Hashkafa Pratis. And it takes them 45 minutes to tell you this unbelievable story. I'm sure you get this around the clock. So I'm not going to share with you any stories, but I, I wanted to know from you. Um, I'm sure there are times that maybe you're down, you're sad, you know, things are not, you know, life, life has its challenges. What do you, what, what, is there a story that you have in your mind that you, that you think to yourself, like, let me just refresh my memory. Let me just think this through and I'll just, you know, it'll lift my spirits. You have such a story. I don't know if I have that kind of story. I have to think about that, but I will tell you, you know, listening to Rav Nussin, as you just heard him, and you and I were just sitting there with our mouths open, I can just tell you that I am probably one of the luckiest people in this universe because I deal with Rav Nussin, I wouldn't say on a daily basis, but when the last number of books he edits and uh, he's edit, he edited the Haggadah 
and there's another editor in Art Scroll. Her name is Mrs. Frumi Eisner. She's fabulous. And many times, the way it works is I'll give in a story or I'll give in a, an essay and I'll give it to Mrs. Eisner. She'll edit it. She'll give it to Rab Nussen. And then he sends it back. And Frumi Eisner and I are talking. Look at this man. This man knows everything. You know, so when, when I just read what he writes and how he edits and how he speaks the way he just speaks now. And I have a Shaifas with such a human being. That's, that's, that's the greatest impetus, you know, that there's, that, that there's something to strive for. And besides Rab Nassim, I have the great, great source of learning with Rab David Cohen. Now, I don't know if you know Rab David Cohen, but he's from the G'dayli Hadur. A Seichel HaYosher beyond. Except for my father, who I felt was tremendous Seichel HaYosher. But Rab David is just, you could talk to him on any topic and, and any Mitzaya. And the fact that I, I'm able to learn with him, and I, I'll just show you this notebook you know, that I have here. No matter what we're learning, we learn two hours a week. And this has been going on for decades. I learned with him this morning for an hour. We did it over the phone. I have Shilas that I ask him about Hashkofa. Right now I'm learning Rus with one grandson. I'm learning Shmuel with another grandson. And I'm learning, you know, something else. No matter what I want to, in, in anything. So when you can talk to a person like that and, you know, or you come out of his house, sometimes I'll come out of the office where I'm learning with him and I'll say to his Reviton, this is not Oilam Abad, this is Oilam You know, it's so enjoyable. It is like, so, you know, when you deal with Rab Nassim and you deal with Rab David and you have these people in the world to look up to and, you know, that that's what, you know, that's what is the greatest impetus. It's that's not a particular story. It's the people that I am so fortunate to work with. And I have many, many people that I'm, I'm so close with. There's a guy, Yaakov Solomon, who Rab Nassim knows very well. Tremendous Bikeach. And certain family members, listen, you know, and if you're blessed with these kind of people, that's the greatest impetus. There's no particular story. It's, it's the people. Rabbi Kron, it, 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 it's the second time that you, that you circled back to the same idea. Your, your fascination with people, whether it's in different geographical locations or who they are, I, I wasn't expecting it. I'm very, I'm very, I'm like pleasantly surprised. It's like amazing how you find um, your eyes light up when you talk about other people being good or great, looking up to them rather than bygone years of things that happen. Of course we focus on that, but that's like your, it's your focus. Your focus is on the here and the now, the people that yeah. we have. Hashem. I think so. I think so. And I, I, because there's so much to gain from so many people, you know, there's so many good Yidin that you could learn from. I'll tell you another person who inspires me every time I hear him, and that's Rabbi Beryl Wine. You know, it, when you listen to Rabbi Wine and you listen to the biographies, that's to me my favorite, the biographies and the way he analyzes an Adam Godel and he brings the history and he brings the thought process. It's a creative mind. Can I know her? And, and you know, that's, that, that's what's inspirational. And, um, Again, it's funny. I never thought about it. I've never thought about what you just said, that my inspiration is people. But come to think of it, it really is. You're very welcome. You could quote me in your next book. <laughs> Rabbi Wine is an amazing person. Rabbi Wine is in his high 80s. He's legally blind. 
and he's still writing. He doesn't actually write anymore, but he dictates. He's still churning out books, and he leads tours to Europe. He comes, he, he comes, he lectures in America. The man doesn't give up. Wow. Got to tell you now, something about, about Pesach. We were once at, a, at an event, and uh, Pesach was asked to introduce me. He called me up and he said, do I mind? I said, well, you have to promise me, promise me that you'll talk about the institution. Don't say anything about me. So, of course, you just heard. So when I, when I went up, I shook hands with him and I said, you promised me. And he said, I couldn't help it. <laughs> and I started thinking, I said, I want to thank Rabbi Krohn for the hespit. <laughs> And you just heard the husband. <laughs> I want to I want to add a chapter to that. Now, Rabbi Rabbi Sherman, you're very very well known, um, not just as as the general editor of Art School, but for your your even kill demeanor. How you're just known. That's I, I I've been hearing for years um, from my great aunt Tante Shoshana Lefkowitz. She you know your machatinus that she always used to say that it's just. Rabbi Sherman is legendary for just, just the word mensch is not even the word. Just being, just to even get, but now people don't realize when you're publishing a book and Rabbi Krohn could, I'm sure attest to this. There are major, major I'm deadlines. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm still alive, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> I was getting to a question. It wasn't an introduction. <laughs> that there, there are, there are major deadlines. There are pressures. Right when there's things that go right, things go wrong. Um, you, you're you're at the helm of an organization which is probably one of the most successful Jewish organizations that we have. Baruch Hashem. Um, how do you deal with the constant pressures and deadlines and things that you have? And just you know, people they say don't don't cry over spilled milk. Nobody who cries thinks that they're crying over spilled milk. They all think it's legitimate gripes and concerns that they're upset about. <laughs> but by you, you you must have pressures that most people don't have. And I know this was from the beginning when you started off. Um, you know, with Megillas with Megillas Esther, you had to they get this done. You know, in one month, that itself is a crazy pressure. But you now have you know an unlimited amount of titles and deadlines and pressures that you must deal with. What's your secret to staying calm? That's my question. How do I meet everybody? How do we do that? How do we become that just constant, you know, happy hmm. demeanor? Well, first of all, I'm not at the helm. The mayor's lot of it's a Kronlevrocha was the founder. He was at the helm. And now Gedalia's lot took over and he's doing a magnificent job. He's the one who bears the responsibility. You know, I'm just, uh, I come along for the ride. <laughs> I, I learned... I learned to be calm from uh, in my yeshiva days when I, I was a rabbi and then an assistant principal in the general studies department. And I learned from the my English principal then. And also as a rabbi, you have to you have to learn to control yourself. You have to you have to know, you have to learn when not to look. You don't have to hear everything, you don't have to see everything. And uh, it started out as self-control, and then uh, it became it became habit. You know, how how do I do it? I don't I don't, I don't think I'm anything exceptional in that uh, in that vein. You do what you have to do, and uh, if there's pressure, so you you have to put aside the pressure and just do the job. 
Okay. Now, Rabbi Krohn, in, in, your, in your career, you've obviously taken things also, I'm, I'm using the word career very loosely because I don't think anybody can classify what you do as a, as a specific career title that they want to get into. <laughs> I don't know how many people can say, I want to become the next, you know, Magid. But what, what piece of advice maybe that you heard or that you have for people who want to get to the level that you've gotten to? What, what did you do? Obviously, everything's biyat Hashem and it's all Hashemayim, but on a practical level, like what did you do that, that got you to the level that you did? Was it just constantly doing the same thing or was there, is there a mindset? What's your it's secret? Two, it's a very good question and I'll tell you two answers. One, you said something before that is not true. You said that I don't have to prepare for a speech. There is never, ever a speech that I don't prepare for. And you could I ask can Rabbi Nelson, he'll tell you that. There mm-hmm. is never, ever a speech. Even if I, today I gave a speech, I gave two speeches today. Very proud of both of them. Today, I gave a speech in my backyard for plasma donation, convalescent plasma donations. There was an article in the New York Times just two days ago, a tremendous kid of Shem Shemayim, about how many Hasidic guys have come forward to donate blood and plasma as part of the blood. And what there is a wonderful organization now called uh, the Corona Plasma Initiative. Three Ehrlich Afrum guys, they don't want their names mentioned, although one's picture was in the Times. And they have started getting people to donate and they have connections with blood banks and with the Mayo Clinic and John Hopkins. Now, I prepared for that. Hours and hours and hours. I'm not a biologist. I'm not a scientist. When they first called me that I should give this talk, I I said, I don't even know how to spell plasma. You know, and what do I know about plasma and blood? But that I had to prepare. There's no question. But today in the afternoon, I gave a writing course, so to speak, a class, I should say, to the Kamenetz Yeshiva boys, seventh and eighth grade in Lakewood. Rabbi Chaim Levovitz is the principal. And I prepared for that. I prepared for that. I know it's seventh and eighth graders. I could probably just get up and talk, but I don't do that. I have notes. I had a plan. I, I, I tried to figure how do they view it and what are they going to be listening to and how can I get them interested? Not what could I teach them? And it was a fabulous class. I was supposed to speak 25 minutes. I spoke 45 and every kid was on. They were on, they didn't have Zoom, but they had uh, audio and every kid was responding. It was amazing. That's the first thing. You've got to prepare, just like Rebbeim, prepare for a shear. Mahavda, when I prepare for a speech, I have to give a speech no matter where it is. You must come prepared. And people realize that you're prepared. If you can tell a difference, whether the guy thought about it on the way to, you know, to the hall or whether he really prepared. That's the first thing. The second thing is I never, ever, Ask anybody to do anything that I wouldn't do. If I'm telling everybody to daven altira, that's because I do. If I tell everybody that I want them to say korbanos and katoris, that's because I do. I would never, ever ask anybody to do a chesed a day and keep a notebook unless they, they understand that that's what I think is important to do. And that's one thing. And the second thing is, I always try to tell the truth and to do research on a story so that when somebody's listening, they can feel that this guy's telling the truth. 
And so therefore it could be inspirational. If you make up a story and you add to stories and things that didn't happen, so why should somebody be inspired? They'll be inspired for five, 10 minutes, nothing. But if they hear a story from a, a simple person or an Adam Godel, and they know it's true, and they see that, hey, you know, these are people in our generation. And if they can do it, maybe we can do it. And we can grow. And I think that that makes a very big difference. I always try to listen to my speeches from the way the audience listens. Not to show how smart I am, but just to see what's going to move them. And if you look at it that way, it's a different different type of speech altogether. Wow, that's great. Now, I, I have two more questions. We have about eight minutes left. So I hope, hope we could get to both of them, if possible. Um, the first question is, you've both been on the, I guess, the research end of so many big people, um, whether it's writing about them or experiencing them. You also both have access, um, you know, to so many G'daylem, you know, throughout all the various things that you've been involved with in your lives. Um, I want to start with Rabbi Sherman, and then I want to hear Rabbi Krohn. Um, is there something that is like the the common thread through all these people? Are they all just smarter than us? Do they work harder than us? Like, what what is it that makes G'daylem G'daylem? <laughs> Obviously, they're smarter. Obviously, they work harder. But is there a common thread? And I know each one has their own personality. But is there something that you can say like just keep your head down and just keep grinding and then you'll become as great as you'll become in whatever field you put your mind to is that what it is or is there maybe more to that well obviously for someone for someone to be considered a godel a godel hador just or or just a first class godel they have to have uh, they have to have good minds good memory is important although although I know people, and I was a yeshiva principal. I was a rebbe. I was in Chinuch for 14 years. And I can tell you, I won't, I won't mention names, but I can tell you people today who are among the major Rosh Yeshiva, Mechanchim in America, who were my Talmidim, and I would never have guessed that they become what they could become what they became. You, you have to work at it. Yeah, I remember... Lahavdu, um, the great basketball player Walt Frazier, Clyde. He went. He went yeah. to a high school, three miles away from his home, and he and he walked dribbling a basketball the whole time. Mm-hmm. I often tell people, you know, you don't, you don't become a great basketball player by watching highlight films. You have to work at it. You can't become a Talmud Chacham unless you work at it. But one common denominator that uh, that I would say among the G'daylem that I was close to, they thought through a problem. They thought through a problem. When you came to them, they didn't just give you an answer off the top of their heads. Although the top of their heads were pretty good. They thought about it. And if it was something where there was, there was another side, they would not answer until they heard the other side of the story. And that's why people learned from them. People trusted them. That's why they were able to run Klal Yisrael. Wow. I remember I, I once went, had a meeting, an audience with Rebbe Yashiv, and Rebbe Frati, Rebbe Yosef Frati, he took me there in his private car and then in, his, in Rebbe Yashiv's elevator. And I had a meeting for about 10 minutes, which is, we won't discuss it on camera, but it was a very, very fascinating meeting. And he told me, Rebbe Frati, a few things during that car ride. And one of the things he mentioned was 
He says, I hear from people all the time how they believe that they're the next Rebel Yashiv. And he says to them, really, can you tell me how long do you plan on sleeping tonight? <laughs> and he says, whatever the answer is, he says to them, it, it, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. That's not how Rebel Yashiv became Rebel Yashiv. Um, Rabbi Krohn, is there something Shlomo that Heimann, you're... Shlomo Hyman used to say that there are people who want to learn Kolatara Kula in one night, and they want to sleep that night also. <laughs> Rabbi Kron, is there something that you see as a common thread between many of the people you've written about or studied? I think one of the things that I'm attracted to in an Adam Godo is when they don't, uh, I don't know if I should say this, but they're not Kanoim, they're sweet. You ever talk to Ramatisio Solomon? Is there any sweeter person than him? You should have a Shlema? I don't know if you ever had the schuss to speak to the Manchester Rosh Hashiva Rav Segel, the sweetest and the kindest person. When you spoke to Rav Pam, the sweetest and the kindest person. When you spoke to Rav Zelik Epstein, the sweetest and the kindest person. And those are people that I think that, that are the great people in Kuala Yisrael. You know, there are others, you know, that are very bombastic and I'm sure that they're, you know, very important and very great. But those are not the ones that I personally can relate to and gain from. You know, to me, an Adam Godel is, is somebody that has patience and is, is just so overwhelmingly imbued with Avas Yisrael. And that comes through. And when, and when you, you feel that from these people, you know, it rubs off. Now, sure, as a once told me, there, there are many people who are brilliant and who know, who know a lot. Klal Yisrael, he said, Klal Yisrael has a chush. Klal Yisrael somehow senses who the, who the Gedele Hadar should be. So you had, uh, you had Reb Moshe, and you had Reb Yankiv, and you had Reb Aaron, and you had the Satmarov, and you had Reb Shach. There are other people who are great, great Gedele Tairim. But Klal Yisrael sensed that these were the people who have to lead Kalal Yisrael. Wow. The leaders were, were wow, amazing. Now, we have, we have only a couple minutes left. But I just want to ask um, you, Rabbi Sherman, one last question. I'm sure, you know, everybody sees the success of Art Scroll and all the things that it does. Um, can you just give us a minute or two on maybe some of the challenges, maybe from the beginning or, or times where you realize, like, we have to like sit down and like view our organization, um, maybe something that you faced and how you overcame that. Everyone sees the successes, but were there times that there was any, any, any sort of challenges that you said like, one second, let's think this through and how did you get through that? Well, the first, the, the first consideration we have, a book or a safer has to help for Kvot Shemayim. If it's just entertaining, it'll be a bestseller. We've rejected many books that we knew would be bestsellers, but they did not fit. They did not fit that prototype of what we're of what we're here for. We're not we're not here to make money. People think millionaire publishers. We're far from it. We've uh, we put out sfarim that never in a hundred years will break even. Rebiankov uh, Kamenetsky told us once, "Do divri hayomim," because there's no real parish on divri hayomim. There are steers divri hayomim say for Malachim, say for Shmuel. They, they don't drive. And we did it at a great expense. We hired a magnificent 
Talmud Chacham to do it with Moshe Eisman from Baltimore. It still hasn't broken even after 35 or 40 years. Challenges, yeah, we, we've had our challenges and uh, there are times when we when we put out a cipher and people attacked it. We've been, we've been attacked by people and sometimes uh, very harsh of the people. When you're trying to do the right thing and we consult, we always consulted Reb Moshe, Reb Yanke, Reb Zalik Epstein. We always consulted Gedolim. Reb, Reb David Feinstein should live and be well. And when we feel that we're guided by Gedolim Torah, then we're ready to take the, uh, you know, throw the, throw the rocks. You know, they say the Kedush uh, Arim, or was it the Geir Rebbe, the Imre Yemes? Somebody came into him, he gave him, I, I know, you, 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 you want to stop. <laughs> He, he gave him a bag with little pebbles. He says, what is this? He said, I did you a big favor. So when you throw things at me, throw the little ones, don't throw rocks. <laughs> when, when you're a part of the establishment, you're a target. Mm-hmm. And as Truman used to say, if you can't take the heat, don't stay in the kitchen. Wow. Okay, thank you. Now, we're, we're done. I know that we had we had 60 minutes of, of, of both of your time, which is incredible, incredible, incredible schuss. Um, I, I do want to say that, first of all, Rabbi Sherman, it, it's, it's incredible to, to be speaking to you and, and to feel your warmth. And Rabbi Krohn, um, your, your smile is, it lights up my screen. I, I, I wish I could have a picture of this. Your smile is, is infectious. Um, you know, I wanted to tell you that. I once heard- Rabbi Krohn is an understatement. No, I just want to tell you that I, I once heard from one of the great basketball players in my life was telling me before I shouldn't quote who it is and I won't quote who it is. But after you, Rabbi Sherman, <laughs> um, he said, I never lost the basketball game. I only ran at a time. Vince Lombardi was, said that. Michael Jordan also said it. Uh, yeah. Okay, once we're throwing names, it I'll does, throw names. They both have the same writer. <laughs> it must be. I think that that's really the key to greatness. It's not just that you have a vision, but you have the perseverance and you're willing to push forth. Thank you both, 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 not just for, for tonight, but what you do for the call, both tremendous inspirations, um, an inspiration to me personally. Thank you for everything. Um, I thank you for giving of your time. Have a wonderful evening and everybody should tune in at Shem on Monday nights at 8.30, and then on Thursday nights again at 8.30 here to the Ruby and Epstein show. I almost forget that I'm doing a live show, honestly, because I'm so captivated in this conversation that I just like, oh, we're also doing a show. My wife, my wife is sitting off camera and she kicks me. She says, you're on the show. You're on the show right now. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in and watching us. We really greatly appreciate right. it. Let's do it again someday. Amazing. Thank you. Thank, thank you both thank you very so much. Thank you, Ruben. Thank you, Pesach. Thank you, Rabbi You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.